Good afternoon. It's Friday the 16th of, <coughs> excuse me, it's Friday the 16th of December 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Ryan Garish, delighted to be here with Patrick Henningsen in the studio. And uh, we're also joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands. Well, there's only one place to start and that's war. So let's have a little listen to Boris Johnson speaking in Parliament a little while ago. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the House will know that uh, su supplies of British, American and other Western equipment have been absolutely vital in helping our Ukrainian friends to protect themselves against uh, continuing and merciless Russian attacks. And I thank him and the government for all that they uh, have done and continue to, to do. Does he agree with me that we and our allies uh, must help our Ukrainian friends uh, not just to take out the, the drones and the missiles, and that means uh, supplying them with uh, anti-aircraft uh, systems and fixed-wing aircraft to help shoot them down, but also to take out the launch sites of those missiles and drones uh, by supplying the Ukrainians with the use of longer-range missile systems such as ATACMS, because that is the way truly to protect our Ukrainian friends and to bring the war to an end as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, without my right honourable friend's support, uh, to me and Ukraine, none of this would have been possible. And I want to place on record my great appreciation for his support through that process. He's absolutely right, Mr. Speaker, that the Russians uh, are taking advantage of the short range capability of the Ukrainian armed forces by using these Iranian kamikaze drones. Uh, and as we see against all the rules of law, including the Geneva Conventions, the mass targeting of civilian Christian infrastructure is not only a war crime, but is a war crime that we must see does not go unpunished. Well, there we are. I don't know what our viewers uh, thought of that clip, but when I saw it, I was utterly disgusted, both with the state of uh, Boris Johnson, but also, of course, the nonsense coming out of his mouth. He clearly didn't really understand what he was talking about. But what he was doing is pushing for more long range weapons in order to ramp up the war against uh, Ukraine. And uh, what Ben Wallace then went on to say was perfectly correct. Um, we did it. So the agenda is to get this war ramped up. Of course, Boris Johnson, one of the people instrumental in crushing the Minsk agreements to get the conflict started, and now they want to pour the weapons in. So this is a, this is a big departure, Brian, from uh, what the US has been saying for the longest time, which was we're not going to be supplying long-range uh, missiles uh, to Kiev, uh, because obviously that's going to escalate the situation uh, beyond anyone's control at that point. It becomes uh, a NATO versus Russia multinational conflagration, which is effectively World War III. Is that what Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson are advocating for? That's where I think they want to go. They're certainly doing all the right steps, but uh, take us into the conflict. Yes, so we have this nice animated slide here, which is already animated. The Ukraine, Ukraine conflict. So the, what the Russians are saying is that the U.S., there'll be consequences uh, if the uh, U.S. supplies uh, Patriot missile batteries, for instance, uh, to defend uh, Kiev. Okay, so that's the rhetoric. And of course, the consequences arrived. We'll talk about that 
um, in just a minute. They arrived this morning at the early hours of the morning right across in multiple cities across Ukraine. So every time there's a provocation or announcement, Russia will always respond in kind. Yeah. They're pretty predictable, Brian. They're pretty predictable in how they respond. So it, it should come as no surprise to anybody in the West that's uh, you know advocating for uh, a longer war. Indeed. And uh, of course, the other thing we've got to remember is this effectively is the claim of another super weapon, but there's only one or possibly two units going into Ukraine. So on one hand, this is nonsense. But on the other hand, Russia clearly sees it as a threat. Let's just have a little uh, listen to what Maria Sakharova had to say about the Patriots. The Pentagon has given the green light to drone strikes on Russian territory. Inspired by such support, Ukrainian politicians are already declaring their intention to strike at the critical infrastructure of the Moscow region. On December 13th this year, the United States announced its intention to provide Ukraine with a Patriot missile defense battery. We would like to remind you that all weapons supplied by the West to Ukraine are legitimate military targets for the Russian armed forces and will either be destroyed or captured. So, Brian, the important thing to uh, recognize here is that the Patriot missile system uh, is going to be uh, deployed. It's going to be operated by U.S. personnel. Uh, the Iron Dome, for instance, in Israel is, is staffed, is run, is managed out of Stuttgart, Germany, out of U.S. CENTCOM. A lot of people aren't aware of that. So that's Israel's fabled Iron Dome, which is basically a complicated array of Patriot missile batteries. Yeah. So basically it's the same thing that's going to happen uh, with this system in, in Kiev. So to, to, for anyone to say there's not going to be U.S. personnel on the ground, there's going to be technical personnel, and it's going to be run by the Pentagon, yeah. full stop, as the Iron Dome is uh, in Israel. So that is going to be a major escalation on the part of the United States and NATO. So they're basically going to read that. Moscow is going to respond in kind. More likely, they could vaporize those batteries in a matter of days, minutes. Days. <laughs> minutes, yeah. uh, in fact, with a hypersonic missile, for instance. So what's that going to mean? Where's that going to take Europe? Where's that going to take NATO? Uh, deeper into the conflict. So is this the Western agenda to ramp it up? Where do we go here? A ceasefire? Well, let's uh, look at the comments by the uh, Russian uh, spokesperson, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. And uh, he says here, this was a press conference on Wednesday, no plans for a Christmas or New Year's Day ceasefire. And the special military operation continues uh, the priority is to protect the people of the DPR and the LPR. We'll show you a video clip in a minute of what's going on in Donetsk. And this is interesting uh, comment here. The accession of Odessa and Chernigov to Russia depends on the choice of the citizens there, foreshadowing for a potential situation, a referendum, for instance, or a lot of people have been talking about an uprising in Odessa, Brian. So that's interesting. And here, in the case of the deliveries of the Patriot missile systems to Kiev, they will become a legitimate target yeah. of the Russian Federation forces, as we said. So everyone's clear about where things are right now, but this is what happened this morning. Widespread missile attacks across multiple cities here. So this is not good news, but this is basically the same old script as just being rerun over and over again. But it's also proving that, of course, the Russians are not running out of ammunition and missiles. And in this particular attack, we've also now uh, seeing a fall off in supplies from Ukraine's nuclear 
power stations and that's a first. So another massive attack. So complete nonsense from the BBC that the Russians are running out of, of missile systems and ammunition. So the big, the big worry is that uh, Russia is going to be mounting a major winter offensive. And of course, this is probably going to happen uh, if you think about how, the, how aggressive Russia was last February with the hard ground and so forth during the winter. I wouldn't be surprised if that is indeed the case. Um, but what's interesting is how the media is pivoting. This is Reuters here. And if you scroll down, interesting bit of information warfare going on. If you scroll down, you'll see a video come up from Reuters. And instead of showing uh, civilians dead in, in Kiev or on the western Ukrainian side, they don't. They're showing the siege of Donetsk by Ukrainian forces and civilians being hit there. I had a lengthy interview with an international lawyer who is based in Donbass for the last right. couple of weeks. He confirmed that the city is under siege and civilian targets are being hit indiscriminately. Of course, Vanessa and others have uh, echoed those same reports. So let's look at this report from Reuters. This is what ran on Reuters. And I, I quite frankly was surprised that they actually ran this. And to me, this shows a sea change because Reuters would not run this report showing victims on the Donbass side unless it was approved at the highest editorial level. Yeah. But let's look at this report. Ukrainian forces staged their heaviest shelling attack in years in the country's Russian-controlled east on Thursday. That's according to Moscow-installed officials there. The attacks came as both sides ruled out a Christmas truce in a war that's been raging for almost 10 months. The Russian-backed mayor of Donetsk City said 40 Ukrainian rockets were fired from grand multiple rocket launchers in the early hours. An apartment block was damaged and a hospital where Marina works. There was a woman lying here. Just imagine all that debris flying her way. You can see some blood here. She was taken into surgery. They sewed up and bandaged the wound on her leg. Local resident Ludmila Butsenko sustained a head injury. I heard a loud rumble, and I saw something like a big fireball falling right in front of the balcony. It all started coming in onto my bed. Glass, bits of bricks, all of it. Meanwhile, Russian forces kept up shelling and airstrikes along the entire eastern front line. Fighting continues to rage largely in Ukraine's east and south, with little movement on either side. Ukrainian Army Brigadier General Alexei Gromov said Russia was digging in for a long war and still wanted to conquer the whole country. The Kremlin realizes that in the short-term perspective, it is impossible to achieve victory in the war, thus seeking to turn the conflict into a prolonged armed confrontation aimed at exhaustion of Ukraine and our partners. Moscow and Kiev are not currently holding talks to end Europe's biggest conflict since World War II. On Wednesday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said a Christmas ceasefire was not on the agenda, the same day that Kiev suffered its first major drone attack in weeks. Two administrative buildings were hit, but air defences largely repelled the attack. Russia denies deliberately attacking civilians, while Ukraine says Russian strikes constitute a war crime. Well, interesting, uh, interesting report. So you go from the attack on civilians to the Ukrainian military report, which is just repeated verbatim as if it's true. And uh, there seems to be now cognitive dissonance in the Western media as to how you report this. Perhaps if we could just bring Alex in here very uh, quickly. <coughs> Apologies for the voice this morning. 
Um, Alex, it's getting very interesting how the Western media is having trouble reporting because events on the ground are not going in line with their predetermined narrative. I did notice, Brian, in that Reuters voiceover that even more than usual, uh, the voiceover script uh, insisted that every uh, official and every uh, structure in the Donbass that was referred to was Russian installed, Russian backed. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is a means of mollifying uh, the subsequent claims that are quoted uh, as coming from them, which are not contested as regards the number of people injured and killed by Ukrainian shelling. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an act of desperation, Alex, clearly, but it, it very well, well observed modifying the propaganda. The problem with the media is they don't have any images of Russians hitting civilian targets in Ukraine. So obviously that's why they're showing, they have to show some footage, so they're showing this footage. So I think that's interesting and worth pointing out. Now, the, you, want to want, you want to know what is behind this. If you want to go down to deep geopolitics, uh, here is General David Petraeus. He's the former head of the CIA, uh, known to some uh, U.S. veterans as David Petraeus. But nonetheless, here he's kind of let the cat out of the bag here uh, when pressed on this interview with Fox Digital, and he says, caught on the hoof. And that's why the support for the Ukraine is so important, especially coming after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, a mess that he helped also to create, to show that the U.S. can and will lead the world, and it has the will to do just that. So again, that has to far and away be the top priority. So there's the, there's the main thesis there. Uh, the U.S. has to keep pressing, and so that's also deep geopolitics uh, and power politics. So they're worried that the truth about what happened in Afghanistan, America ultimately pulling out with nothing settled, nothing changed. Now refocus on Ukraine, but trust us on Ukraine, everything will be okay. Or have I got that wrong? No, that, that and we're just going to try to set the pace geopolitically and we don't want Russia to have the upper hand and set the pace geopolitically with, with Eurasia. So now, in terms of the EU, there's some squabbling going on and this is interesting here. EU members failed to reach an agreement on new Russian sanctions. So where's the schism here? Here's the schism. This is interesting. Who's holding this up? Well, it's Poland and the Baltic states. They want to basically want to embargo, blockade uh, on Russian fertilizer. So this is essential for the agricultural industry, food supplies. The rest of the EU wants sort of more reasonable regulations. They're saying that if a company is owned by a, quote, oligarch, then it shouldn't have any pass-go in any European port. So this is interesting. And this ties directly into, and by the way, this is Poland, the Baltic states, uh, very much under the thumb of NATO, under the thumb politically of Washington, more so than France, Germany, and maybe some of the other major European countries here. But that ties directly into this. It's the Dutch farming protests that have been going on for, the, for quite a while, but have really ramped up in the last couple of weeks. What are they trying to do? To meet green targets, they're banning, trying to bring nitrogen levels down. So banning fertilizer and things like that will go directly into this agenda. This is purely the Great Reset agenda, the de-industrialization of Northern Europe, yeah. but also uh, uh, killing what are uh, a long-established and rich uh, tradition of farming in a country like the Netherlands, which uh, per square mile, per kilometer is the most productive agricultural producer in the world. Yeah. There's nobody even close. 
So you have to read these two things together. There's not a consensus in the EU, and we're going to see possibly further fissures uh, along these lines very soon. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Patrick. Well, we're going to take this a bit deeper, and it's really interesting how segments of UK column news, which come together pretty quickly uh, before we're or as we're preparing for the news, suddenly seem to um, slot into each other as we deliver the news. So let's have a look at what the UK government has been up to. And what we're really starting to do here is set the scene for the fact that the meddling in Ukraine has been very deep and very widespread. So here's the UK government, UK programme assistance to Ukraine 2019 uh, to 2020. And it's saying that Ukraine remains a significant priority with strategic importance for the long term security. And um, if we uh, just add a bit of this, it gets interesting because when it talks about the projects that are being paid for by uh, the UK government and partners, um, I just chose this particular one, but all of a sudden we get the National Democratic Institute crops up. Well, who are they? Uh, well, here's the uh, website, the future of observer rights. And what you discover is that this is a US state-backed institution so everything about it is the US state the US government and you're even down to the levels of ambassador circles where you have high level or former high level uh, American uh, politicians and um, civil servants as we call them Patrick who are operating to unleash these agendas on the ground. So if we follow on through this, of course, let's remind our audience that the BBC's pernicious little charity, BBC Media Action, has been working to um, manipulate you, uh, the media in Ukraine for a long time. Uh, so this article uh, is going back in time. But uh, if we have a look at what is happening here, Tony Housen, um, one of the BBC Media Action team, uh, has written an article where he's talent spotting for what will ultimately become BBC-controlled Ukrainian media mouthpieces. So if you think that the uh, reports from Ukraine are simply from Ukrainian state media, no, 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 because the, the BBC has been in there for some time. And um, if we uh, follow on through here, we've got, uh, sorry, advance one slide too far. We've got a little video clip with a gentleman talking to uh, forces news. Now this is report, these are reports that come out to British Armed Forces uh, troops, uh, the Army, Navy, Air Force, apparently giving them factual information on Ukraine. Let's have a look at this little clip and see what the gentleman concerned says. The logic would seem to be that they're trying to take the Donetsk region, but but you know they're not exactly choosing the best places to to attack. And my suspicion is that 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 Putin has given them a directive: you do this, and then everybody then follows the directive without without you know rhyme or reason or or just cause. They're just bombarding everything. They're just shelling everything. Um, they're shelling the city and they're shelling the the surrounding area to Bakhmut. World War One trench works are there, but of course also the guys have got to defend the city area as well, which is actually, you know, which is quite challenging because it's it's quite a big place. 
So it's not a small amount of people that are in there uh, defending. So, yes, in places, you know, it's World War One trench works where, and where the forests are, the, the forests around Bakhmut and the parks and things, they're just no longer there like that. You know, the trees are shredded. So that is World War One looking at it. It's rotten. It's horrible there. This is the, the post-Putin struggle actually starting already. So, you know, the boss of Wagner Group wants to show everybody that the army's useless and his people are powerful so that he is, a, is an important person in the, in the post-Putin post world. So an interesting little dialogue. Um, what does he get into? Effectively, he gets into regime change. But the key question is, who is Lieutenant, Comer uh, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Grant? Before I answer that question, Alex, what did you make of the... I know that was only a, a few seconds of delivery, but what did you make of the statements by that man? Um, how can we put this? He... Lieutenant uh, Colonel Grant has got a, a slick manner about him. I'm not suggesting he's a particularly, you know, uh, mendacious operator, uh, but the talking points have clearly come out of uh, quite some reflection, uh, and they're well coordinated with the footage. Those listening in audio only might have missed that there was a few seconds uh, of Russian prisoners being addressed by the Wagner Group, this private military company, uh, and being told, and there, there is plenty of other footage of this, uh, we are going to offer you prisoners a chance to fight in Ukraine. Uh, and of course, that uh, supports the case of, of Russian desperation that's being made. It is one of the aspects at stake. And there is genuine footage of that, uh, of prisoners being told, uh, look, uh, you can fight in Ukraine. And if you don't like it, we'll just execute you. I know that sounds particularly shocking to some people, but that is one of the things going on. It's not the whole picture. Uh, so he, he's presenting it, perhaps, shall we say, in tandem with those who are making the report. It's obvious that they want to lead the question in a certain direction towards the idea of total Russian desperation and perhaps ignoring the idea of the operational level of warfare in which commanders, as in the Second World War, on the Eastern Front were told, this is your objective and you're largely free to achieve it with your resources. Okay, th thank you for that, uh, Alex. Uh, very interesting, you use the description slick. Well, I think this man is slick and he's slick because he's not quite what he seems. So what label can we put on him? Well, let's bring in this straight away, a senior fellow of the Institute for Statecraft. And uh, he mentioned, or it was on screen, he was a defense expert, the Baltic Security Foundation. Well, if you've never heard of that before, uh, go and have a look at their website. It's a group of people that have come together in order to sort out Baltic strategic security uh, with a, a foundation and a project. And uh, Patrick, I'm going to say to you, can't really find out any easy detail about how this group's funded, but I don't get a warm feeling about it. This to me is deep state, uh, almost certainly UK and the US working with others. What's your, what are your thoughts? Oh, just one of many of a collection of a rainbow of uh, various think tanks and uh, organizations, uh, which are mainly to keep certain people employed um, after their careers in civil service or in the military or to prep them for media uh, appearances and media segments and to basically circulate talking points. Think tanks are basically uh, the, the government or the deep state's version of academia. These are people who wouldn't be in academia, so they create their own academic institutions 
through networks of think tanks in order to promulgate ideas, and that's of course funded by uh, either the state or by the defense industry. Yeah, so unlikely to be independent in what it's doing and the viewpoint that it's putting across. Uh, well, let's put up a bit more information on uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Grant. Um, here's some information. Um, which you can find on the Baltic Security Foundation. Uh, so he worked as a defense and re reform expert in Ukraine. He's worked for the Ukrainian Institute for the Future, Sandhurst, the Royal Naval College at Greenwich. He's worked in Latvia, Estonia, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Montenegro, Moldova, Poland, Albania, Kosovo, Slovenia. So this is a 37 year course, but this man is highly politically involved. Let's just flag up some key points. So he was formerly working with the Ukraine Institute for the Future, senior fellow for the Institute of Statecraft, reformer of the Ukrainian defense housing. That sounds a simple thing, but actually there seems to be quite a lot of it. He's also been a reformer of the Ukrainian military and uh, he is rapidly anti-Russian. This comes across in his statements and his written work. He seems to really, really dislike the Russians. And uh, he's also claimed to be found a member of the SCP political party in Latvia. And I'll just throw this one um, at you, Alex. I found it fascinating that this man has been cruising around the eastern uh, states and then he can simply decide he's going to reside in a country and start a political party. This to me does not sound possible for somebody who is simply a former army officer. It's utterly not done in Sandhurst circles and Warminster circles where he's from, but in his adopted home of Riga, where he now lives there, uh, and in all of those former Soviet and Soviet satellite states, it is quite normal for a, a military big man to found a party. Uh, Riga, of course, has been suggested by several people as the home of the Juan Guaido-style Russian government in exile, uh, the, uh, the pro-Western government in waiting. Uh, far be it from me to suggest that there's a concrete role there for Lieutenant Colonel Grant, but if there were such plans, he would be one of the main men uh, setting it up. Uh, and for those who are wondering about what I was saying a moment ago about the Wagner group uh, not being squeaky clean, there is plenty of footage look for Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the commander of it, clearly a very unsavory character running the Wagner group. And, you know, that that's, I think that's, that's should we say, Lieutenant Colonel Grant's nemesis in here. Uh, the, the, the two of them are, you know, maybe making accusations as each other. Grant is suggesting that Prigozhin is in the running to mount a palace coup against Putin, which is a common talking point, not very credible to me. Uh, but there you go. No, it's, it's a, quite a, a hot cauldron. Uh, that's brewing around Lieutenant Colonel Grant's claims here. But he, as you say, he's gone right down from the Baltic to the Black Sea, turning ministries of defence against the Russians, and he's been in Chile as well. Uh, OK, thank you for that. Well, let's just remind our viewers of the really excellent work that uh, Mike Robinson in particular did with the um, Integrity Initiative and a look into the deep state. Um, so I'm, I picked up immediately that our Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Grant had been a, um, a fellow there with with uh, another deep state organization. And if you haven't seen any of these articles which are up on the UK Column website, uh, please do read them to get an understanding of what we're seeing here. And the Integrity Initiative look into the deep state here. 
uh, and the Institute of Statecraft, these are where you should start off. But the whole thing gets deeper because here is that uh, report into poor governance and corruption in Ukraine's defence housing system. It's not simply there weren't houses, the problem is institutional corruption and it's identified uh, as being a massive problem. So although this was a few years ago, much of it has, has still not been cleared from Ukraine and we're seeing reports of that, particularly around Odessa, which has been covered on the UK column in the last few days. Um, we've got uh, here on the government's, UK government's website, uh, call for project proposals to support defence re reforms in Ukraine. So all this is still going on. Um, but of course, what are we talking about here in 2019? We're after people to help ramp up Ukraine's defence industry. And they're talking about one particular company here, UK Roboron Prom. And what is this? Well, it's a, a vast defence manufacturer. So now we know that the British government embedding itself in this organisation in order to modernise it, in order to ramp up production for the war, which clearly the uh, government knew was coming, the UK government knew was coming. Uh, are we talking, therefore, about a war between Ukraine and Russia or is it between the UK and NATO and Russia? I think it's the latter. Uh, you can visit this company's website and see that they're talking about the sheer scale of the, of the uh, company. So, um, Patrick, this is just so obvious, the deep state meddling of the UK and the US in order to foment this war. And of course, Merkel has now admitted that the Minsk agreements were cynically um, used in order to buy time in order to get Ukraine as a proper military force to attempt what regime change against the Russians. No, absolutely. Uh, this what this also shows is that uh, you know, Ukraine has zero sovereignty as a country. Uh, their cabinet, their leaderships, handpicked by the U.S. State Department. Their defense is being run by NATO, by being run by the U.K., being run by the United States. So it's like on the sovereignty index. You've heard of the corruption index, right? The global corruption index. On the global sovereignty index, Ukraine is also right down there at the bottom. Um, instead of being like they are, like they were at the top of the corruption index. So that's just not good news for the people of Ukraine. Uh, if you uh, care about the country itself, it, uh, if this keeps going, Brian, there's not going to be much of a country left. No, and I think that uh, the likes of Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson will be delighted because they are in the back background planning this. Well, let's just uh, come back to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Grant. And uh, we talked about the Ukraine Institute for the Future. Uh, so we're just going to pop that on screen. So uh, the Institute is, of course, an independent think tank. That's remarkable, isn't it? Uh, when we think about what he has been engaged with, this claims to be an independent think tank. Uh, which forecasts changes and designs, pos uh, designs possible scenarios in Ukraine. Is this helping to foment the war? I would be highly suspicious that it might be. And if we look at other people involved, we've got uh, Viktor Andrusiv here. And of course, what do you see when you look at what his skills are? Social activism and change. So we're drilling into the organizations which have been seeded in Ukraine. And it's all about changing society, activism, change, transformation, disruption. Uh, a little bit more here. 
Uh, we've got uh, what I've called a premonition, the report which they're talking about back in March 2020. Uh, how can Ukraine prepare for the crisis? Well, we're to believe from this article that they were simply looking at an economic crisis. Uh, but I think the image that they've chosen gives us a good idea that what was coming was pretty dark. And it goes on. We can't dwell on it too long in today's news. But as we go through Ukraine, we can see it's now riddled with organisations. Here we've got the Ukraine Democracy Initiative. Um, if we animate the screen a little bit, you'll see how the uh, images come up, engaging with the most active and game-changing pro-democracy groups in Ukraine. Trust us. Let us inject Western democracy into Ukraine and you'll be safe. But of course, they admit there that it's part of a global network. And uh, we can get into other areas. Um, so we've got project goals. I found this interesting because a donor here is the International Renaissance Foundation. And uh, if we have a look at the International Re Renaissance Foundation, it leads us very quickly through to the famous George Soros. So um, what are we looking at here? Alex, just very quickly for you, I very, I'm very sure that what we're looking at here is, is disruption and change agents, which have now been injected by the UK and of course the US in particular, in order to take over uh, Ukrainian society. This country is being wrecked from the inside, never mind the attacks and the warfare going on with Russia at the moment. It is being attacked from the inside and one of the techniques being used from London, both from spook world and from think tank world, is using allied nations, particularly the rabidly anti-Russian uh, chiefs of Latvia and neighbouring Lithuania, uh, as as uh, allies, as stuffed shirts, really. Um, don't forget that recently Kit Klarenberg in the Grey Zone reported on uh, the Kerch Strait Bridge uh, blowing up plans that were uh, sent around uh, by uh, Institute for Statecraft people and uh, one of the key men there. Uh, in fact, if memory serves, he was the head of the Ukrainian cluster for the Integrity Initiative some years ago, is Lithuania's first post-independence defense minister, Aldrius Butkevichus, who was a key recipient of this plan and stayed around uh, turning Ukrainian special forces and planners into hotheads for social change. Uh, and he came straight out of the late anti-communist scene in Lithuania. So the, the Brits are very good, very well versed in turning people in the Baltic region into change agents for Ukraine. There's a lot of interchange between the client states of Anglo-American statecraft uh, in that region and the ukrainians are sitting ducks and uh, easy targets for such uh, narrative spinning they, they can can hardly believe that people in fraternal nations would have pro deep state western intent and, and i might add alex you know it's interesting how the baltic states are now being used uh, much like the balkan region has been used for centuries as a buffer zone between two great powers and uh, the, the person who's going to lose in the end, if things are to escalate, are going to be those people living in the Baltic regions and people living in Poland. But it's interesting how that buffer zone has shifted north uh, from the, the old Styrian Empire, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then north now, the Baltics. Isn't it the same game, Alex? It, it very much is, Pat. And uh, there's many links between the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the... Um, 
uh, Adriatic regions, the Three Seas Initiative, the Intermarium Plan. We've talked about it in longer format, but you know we don't have to just make this up ourselves. It's it's clear that some of the deep state-aligned media is talking about the Balkans as a second front, a second eastern front. The Baltics would be a third eastern front. In population and economic terms, they are much less important than the Balkans, Ukraine or the Caucasus. Perhaps they're being kept in reserve uh, in military frontline terms, but they're certainly at the front line of the, uh, the, the mind war that's going on between the Russian former satellite uh, countries or in those countries between Russian and uh, deep state Western interests. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Well, we'll drop another one on screen so that people can see the scale of this attack on the minds of people in Ukraine. Here we've got the Ukraine Democracy Initiative. We speak, we envision, we enact democracy for Ukraine. And don't worry, because this is a robust, non-partisan and grassroots initiative founded by a group of experienced scholars and civic activists from Australia, Ukraine and abroad. Um, I wonder whether there's a bit of Commonwealth influence here, uh, but it isn't only about uh, Ukraine or even Australia because it, it says later in the uh, description that the heart of the initiative is a dedicated global network of academics, field experts, civic activists and pro-democracy groups, policymakers and citizens concerned with the future of democracy. So this is global, it's non-partisan. We need to do more work to see who's funding this one, Patrick. But of course, this attack on Ukraine is also an attack which is being enacted on other Western countries such as UK here and even the US of A itself. Um, what more can we say? Uh, well, I just wanted to bring in this this uh, quote here, if we pop that back on screen, uh, because uh, this organization says that Ukraine is the new political testing ground. So it's a testing ground for NATO, UK, US weapons, but also it's a testing ground for how the West can manipulate and control the Ukrainian uh, public mind, which is particularly sad. I'm just going to break the heaviness of this part of the report by putting up a little cartoon clip which has been circulating on social media, uh, but I think it says a lot in a very short space of time. Let's have a look. Standing behind me are dozens of plaintiffs up there. Don't jump. There dozens of plaintiffs. Well, there we had it. Uh, Biden was doing one of his, uh, we can't really say what was in his mind as he was talking about or telling people not to jump. Uh, but of course, behind him, Zelensky, now the utterly controlled puppet, uh, jumping as much as possible. I'm going to call fake news on that one, Brian. That can't have been Zelensky, of course, because he wasn't wearing uh, the, the pea green uh, Benetton T-shirt. So it, that had to have been edited. I, I don't think that's an authentic video, Brian. I, I, I take the hit on that one, Patrick. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and this one, um, I think we should have another little video clip here. We're simply going to say, and of course, the Western claims that uh, Western weapon systems are going to solve the uh, conflict, are going to win the war. A little bit of tragic footage of the uh, famous F-35B. Let's have a look.
Oh, he just crashed. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Well, the tragedy of that little clip, of course, is not uh, just the crash itself, is the fact that the pilot ejected from ground level and uh, that uh, chute seemed to just deploy. So I don't know what the result is, but I hope that the pilot has survived that unfortunate incident. Um, Alex, let's bring you in here because, of course, many people are questioning um, what the objective of both sides in the Ukraine-Russia conflict and uh, I think you've got an article that's uh, recently appeared on the UK Column uh, website. We have indeed. Uh, Ian Davis, I think it's well known to our regular viewers now, takes, uh, well, I think we're all even-handed, but he takes uh, a more sceptical towards both blocks position than some of us. And there's perfectly uh, sufficient room in UK Column analytically to discuss that. So uh, Ian is uh, taking a position that will not be popular here, with many of our viewers, but it is well argued. <clears throat> and uh, he's asking here in part one of a two-parter, who wants a multi multipolar world order, a phrase that most latterly has been spoken about by President Putin at the annual Valdai Speaking Club, a Russian think tank of importance. Here's just one of the things towards the end of the uh, first part of the article that uh, Ian says, with the prospect hanging low of effective global and monetary financial policy control over every nation on earth, it won't matter to the Bank for International Settlements and its central bank members what individual nations imagine their sovereignty to mean. He's being, I think, justly cynical here and arguing that there is a long backstory to the idea that the West could foment or foster or take advantage of trends towards a multipolar world so that it no longer has directly which is increasingly unmanageable for it financially and culturally, no longer has directly to manage the whole world. It will just give certain fiefdoms away. Uh, and I know that this is a position not everyone is happy with. Um, Patrick, I think, uh, to some extent, entertains this. Vanessa would be less uh, keen on it. But we are going to continue to, to ask our viewers and, and listeners to think hard about these things because Ian is bringing out a wealth of material pleading for the notion that really... Uh, the blocks are playing uh, for everything here. In fact, that's a term that, that Ian uses. It's a game for, for, uh, for, for everything. I don't know whether Patrick has a thought on that because you know, it's, I'm not suggesting a change in edit editorial policy, but we are giving Ian uh, scope to discuss this openly. Well, I, I personally don't have an editorial policy on this issue. Uh, I just look at it as objectively as I can. So, and uh, you know, if you if you study international relations, uh, in people tend to fall in different schools on that. You're the realist school, for instance, or the liberal internationalist school. Uh, but there's other ways, of, of course, uh, of analyzing this as well. So, you know, in terms of great power politics, and a lot of people want to frame the Great Reset in terms of this Manichaean uh, division uh, between the people and Klaus Schwab and the elites, and the Russians are in bed with Klaus Schwab, and the Chinese are in bed with the great with the World Economic Forum. Um, and so a lot of people want to sort of envision um, how all these various teams stack up against each other. Um, however, I think you can maybe take even a further step back from all that and look at this in terms of a long-range view of world history. And one of the X factors, of course, throughout world history has been two things, energy and technology. And as these two things develop and progress and resources uh, become more
more scarce and also become more abundant at the same time because of new technologies and things like that. That will all ultimately, I, I think, shape things like sovereignty, uh, things like international relations and nation states. So it, it's a very complex topic, Alex, to be sure. And so certainly, yeah, there's room for lots of different uh, ways of looking at this and a lot of different discussions to be had. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So where, where are you going to take us, Alex, now? We're off to the wonderful world of the European Parliament, Brian, uh, that uh, uh, bastion of probity. And so the first slide in this segment shows one of the people who's just been arrested unprecedentedly, who's a member of that parliament, the photogenic Eva Kaili, a socialist member of the European Parliament from Greece. Uh, not just a pretty face, she has been a TV presenter, but she's also a master's student of international relations who did a hard degree first, um, architecture and engineering like David Scott. Here she is in a slightly eyebrow-raising shot, uh, talking to Ali bin Semih Al-Mari, the Qatari Labour Minister. Uh, she, at this point, was already vice, one of the many vice presidents, there's one per political faction, one of the many vice presidents or deputy speakers of the European Parliament. This was on the last day of October this year in Qatar. Uh, she's been quite a lobbyist for Qatar, and that's what's got her into trouble. This footage is from the Belgian uh, publication Newsblot. Now, the headline here from another uh, Belgian publication uh, has a, uh, says that she was caught red-handed with a bag full of banknotes. Scandal with this, uh, among the socialists in the European Parliament. It is socialists in both Belgium and Italy who've been caught, but I'm not trying to make it party political. So we read here that Eva Kaili's domestic partner, uh, who is a parliamentary assistant for another member of the European Parliament, an Italian one, has also been arrested. Uh, and uh, the the key kingpin here, we'll see in a moment in, in, uh, in a moment in, in, in a photograph of him is Pier Antonio Panzeri, a former member of the European Parliament, uh, who seems to have been taking a lot of money from Qataris, and that's quite an eyebrow-raising claim. But now we're talking about the Belgian federal prosecutors uh, having a raid done uh, on these properties in both Belgium and their counterparts in Italy, and finding six hundred thousand euros in cash at Panzeri's house from Qataris, allegedly. Uh, on the Greek side, uh, Eva Kaili's uh, father arrived in Brussels and was arrested by the Belgians, uh, having left a hotel room where some gentlemen had just been nice enough to give him a couple of hundred thousand euros in a suitcase, which he left in the room. Um, there's also a former prime minister of the French-speaking part of Belgium, Marie Arena, who is also a member of the European Parliament, who had her uh, office searched. Those who are MEPs couldn't claim immunity because they were caught red-handed with money. So they were given their European equivalent of uh, Miranda rights um, uh, and uh, interviewed with their lawyers in detention. Um, and the president, the speaker of the European Parliament, uh, Roberta Metzola, had to fly back from Valletta to Brussels to, super, to oversee this procedure because Antonio Tarabella, uh, and, and, uh, sorry, Mark Tarabella, a socialist member of the European Parliament in Belgium, had his house near Liège also searched, and that is, gets into areas of diplomatic immunity. So if we put the slide back on, we'll see a bit more of the Belgian news graphics that have uh, illustrated what's going on. Uh, first of all, a, a tweet uh, recently from Eva Kaili. Uh, she was uh, bigging up the UN's labour organisation, the ILO, uh, and saying that they regarded the Qataris as some of the best performers in the uh, Gulf in terms of human rights standards. So she was calling on the EU to enforce new laws. She was particularly keen on lobbying for the Qataris to enjoy visa-free access to the Schengen zone. Um, so here from another D Belgian quality paper, De Standards, this infographic shows that Panzeri, no longer an MEP himself, 
was allegedly the pin kingpin that he used his wife and daughter on the right as mules for the money that he was allegedly getting from the Qataris, hence why they were arrested. Red dots indicate uh, where lots of banknotes were found. Uh, yellow dots indicate where there was a house search. And blue is people associated with the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, Panzeri, Maria Arena, Parabella. So Italians or ethnic Italians in Belgium and in one case a Greek and their staff quite a lot involved as well. So uh, here is Kylie, as I say, not the, uh, uh, the least attractive of, of European uh, members of parliament. And the, the Telegraph in the Netherlands has got more on this. Uh, and here is Panteri, the alleged kingpin, uh, who was already in 2017 had to pay 84,000 euros nearly back to the European parliament for uh, problems with his claims. Um, we also have Dutch journalists, in this case, Hans von Willingenburg, noticing that uh, Eva Kaili's strange voting behavior is already being invoked as a way of distancing uh, her from others in the European Parliament. So he's reporting that people are already saying it was funny how she turned up replacing other members of her bloc to vote on uh, things affecting Qatar, even though she wasn't a member of the relevant committee, and that she was hiding in an area at the back of the voting room normally uh, reserved for underlings, not for uh, 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 European Parliament members. So there we are, the, uh, as the Dutch uh, journalist here from Willigenburg says, this is the Operation Damage Control coming in. Uh, here's what the raid looked like. The Belgian Federal Police, who, because they can't agree on Belgium's national language, use English in their insignia, uh, have shown us all these lovely stashes of cash that have been recovered from all these addresses. And a blog called Unser Europa has gone into detail on this and noticed, there's time, time's too short to go into detail, but Eva Kaili, um, has, as well as coming up through the ranks of her national um, party, the Socialist Party of Greece, PASOK, uh, she's also been very well involved with people up to former Hungarian Prime Minister level, Gordon Boynai, uh, in a George Soros think tank. Uh, he had to come in somewhere, didn't he? Uh, that's just one of the angles involved here. Uh, another uh, Dutch uh, journalist, Alexander Bucker, has reported that there was a commotion in the press conference uh, uh, the day after this in the European Commission, not the European Parliament, separate organisation of the EU, because the spokesman, according to Bakker, only allowed two questions to be asked by the journalist about these multiple arrests of members of the European Parliament. And he reports that Ursula von der Leyen herself decided to say more about this uh, herself. It's pretty amazing what's gone on. Um, the uh, kingpin here, as I say, um, is Italian. Uh, there's reports of a villa uh, having been bought uh, for him and built for him in the Alps uh, and of 100,000 euros being paid by the Qataris for a family party. Um, he is, uh, no irony intended here, uh, head of a charity in the swanky part of Brussels on the edge of the Parc de Bruxelles, uh, just on the edge of the European Quarter as well. And that NGO, which was reportedly raided as well, uh, just to find where the cash was stashed there, that NGO is called Fight Impunity, if you could make that up. So Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, uh, has tweeted out a couple of uh, images bearding the EU about this. One of them is the famous 1981 Walter Cronkite, Reagan and George H.W. Bush shot of everyone having a guffaw. And in this version of the meme by Orban, it says, and then they said the European Parliament is seriously concerned about corruption in Hungary. He's also tweeted out the stash of cash uh, with the slogan, uh, this is the rule of law in Brussels. This is what the rule of law in Brussels looks like. Meanwhile, the European Parliament uh, has been coming up with answers like this. And for what lack of time, I will just put this on screen for a couple of seconds, but people can read this if they want. This is the answer that the European Commission is giving to members of the European Parliament about the concerns about COVID-19 vaccines, 
which is coming out in two parts here. Uh, this was forwarded to me by David Scott as absolute wretched nonsense, which I think is a, a good uh, description of how much interest the European Parliament and the European Commission have in adverse reactions to COVID jabs while all this is going on under their noses. Um, what about the Dutch Parliament? The Dutch National Parliament has uh, voted, although the motion is still in a kind of uh, hold status at the moment, uh, has voted in a majority uh, to uh, threaten Serbia with the suspension of its accession to the European Parliament, uh, European Union, I beg your pardon, uh, because it uh, follows its own Russian uh, foreign policy with regard to Russia and doesn't do what the EU tells it. So the uh, member of the Dutch National Parliament who uh, submitted this, Jeroen von Weingarten, uh, has said that Serbian President Alexander Vucic, who's shown in the image here, um, is not playing ball and not on side with the sanctions against Russia. Russia. And he says that we can and we will, if necessary, stop the EU accession of Serbia until the Serbs do as they're told in their foreign policy. And a couple more in this segment from me. Here is a Dutch member of the national parliament, Olaf Ephraim, who has been sent by, not quite a constituent because we don't have geographical constituencies here, but sent by a concerned member of the public, um, a letter from the leading Dutch bank, Rabobank, with the personal details blocked out saying, um, you are taking out too much cash. This is a security risk. Allow us to inform you uh, that cash is very bad and you should use cards instead. So uh, the Dutch MP, Mr. Ephraim, is challenging Rabobank to stop this and noting wryly that sending these things on paper is not very sustainable, which is something Rabobank makes a big fuss about. Next door in Germany, the Federal Interior Minister, Nancy Faeser, uh, has said uh, in Parliament, in the Bundestag, uh, as covered here by Julian Reichelt, uh, that the Germans wish to reverse the burden of proof in administrative law so that they can get rid of anyone who's even accused of so-called right-wing extremism who works for any government structure without due process. They will have to prove their own innocence and noted impossibility. So again, that's the rule of law in Europe uh, getting to a fairly low ebb as all this is happening. Um, and just one response there in, uh, in Twitter by a criminal lawyer uh, to Reichelt having posted this is saying this is absolute nonsense. You are inciting people with this nonsense because this is administrative law, not criminal law. And you see he's even using the term Volksverhetzer, which is a criminal charge in Germany. So you are absolutely not to say that the Europe European Union has double standards, uh, which is, of course, something that you've interviewed Trevor Kitchen about uh, just recently. And people should read the Trevor Kitchen and listen to the Trevor Kitchen interview you've put on the front page of the uh, homepage at the moment of UK column, because that goes right into detail on the rule of law in Europe. Alex, thank, thank you very much for that. Of course, on the uh, corruption side, my mind takes me back to the uh, Neil Kinnock era, uh, where we ended up with uh, an admission of massive fraud and corruption inside the European Union, never properly investigated, never properly dealt with. Uh, well, what do we say? If you like what the uh, UK column is doing, please join us. And uh, uh, we uh, encourage as many people as possible, not only to join so you can join in the community and watch extra time. But of course, if you want the UK column to expand, which is our intention, uh, we need your financial support and help. So please don't be shy. And uh, of course, we've still got a shop stocked with lots of goodies. I will say that many people are a little bit uh, fretful at the moment about delivery of items. But of course, the UK column cannot do anything about the planned postal strikes. We, strikes. we would just say to you, um, if you want to buy something, 
please go ahead and do it because that will still help the column even though there may be a delay in delivery and of course if you're watching our material please push it out on as many other sites as you can because the aim is to uh, spread the word and uh, Alex I think you had a very nice um, uh, what is this uh, Twitter or is it telegram not too sure what it is but some nice comment this one is Twitter, and almost every day now people tag us on UK as UK Column on Twitter and say very nice things about us. One even recently said we were for a while their only friend. Uh, we don't want to, you know, uh, be God in people's lives, far from it. But it just shows that, you know, the, 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 the praise, the accolade that we keep people sane is really getting into new levels now where we're the only people who talk sense to some uh, before they find new friends to talk to. So Robert Graham here says, if it wasn't for UK Column News, I would never have found out that our illustrious prime minister said in parliament when questioned about injecting a suspect substance into small children, that it was safe. Does this leave Mr. Sunak open to prosecution? A worthy question, and that's one of the reasons UK Column exists, is to bring things that are on the public record to public notice when the mainstream media fail to, so that more thousands and millions of people can make their own minds up about such things. Thank you, Alex. Well, another email that came into us this morning, which I thought was really wonderful. This is a, a reply that our viewer has had from Andrew Bridgen, MP. Um, so what does it say? Andrew Bridgen is saying, thank you for your kind email about my vaccine harm debate in the chamber on Tuesday evening. This is an issue that I am extremely passionate about, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. I receive a great many emails from those who have suffered vaccine harm and the large majority are not constituents. Simply put, I'd love to respond fully to each and every one of you, but regrettably, I don't have the capacity to do so. Please, please be assured though that I do read your emails and am touched by the often heart-rendering stories they contain. They spur me on in my campaign for more transparency on this vitally important issue. Once again, thank you for your kind words and support. May I take this opportunity to wish you and yours a very happy Christmas. So what a lovely email and what does this show us that uh, even MPs react when they're given the right information and they're given support because it's very difficult for them to stand up and be counted and we should certainly praise them when they do. Uh, we've got another little uh, email here uh, from Heather for the UK column and a little bit of comment about Zelinsky, but then it says, thank you for all you do. Your programs are so enlightening and a brilliant contrast to mainstream media worth every penny of your an annual membership. Well, you can freeze the screen to read the rest, but we're going to say thank you very much for those comments. And uh, I think this takes us on to you, Alex, if I uh, remember correctly. That's right, Brian. I have a few very brief uh, mentions of things COVID related. Now, we don't have Debbie with us, unfortunately, at the moment, so I'll be even quicker than I would normally be uh, on this. Uh, one viewer has asked us to uh, highlight this. Mel, the lady who uh, works a lot for the Office of the Patient Safety Commissioner, an institution that Debbie is never failing to bring people's attention to, has replied to a viewer who pushed the Patient Safety Commissioner uh, a little further uh, than the first response received from her and has put on record that the Patient Safety Commissioner who does not attend MHRA board meetings, but she does meet with stakeholders across the healthcare sector as part of her work to amplify the patient voice. Okay, that's her task. The Patient Safety Commissioner takes all issues raised by patients seriously 
and was pleased to be able to raise the concerns around the vaccine damage payment scheme in a recent meeting with the Minister at the Department for Health and Social Care. She will continue to amplify the patient voice where appropriate in the course of future conversations she has, whether that is with the MHRA, Britain's drug regulator, or other organisations. So I think this was sent in as a way of saying, please don't let the Patient Safety Commissioner off the hook. Please politely hold her feet to the fire on this. So I hope that many more people will do likewise. With regard to Mr Bridgen as well, there's been some confusion on social media. He has not, since he made his very stunning speech a couple of days ago in Parliament, suddenly been suspended from the House of Commons. No, rather a couple of months ago, uh, well, beginning of November, so six weeks ago now, he was threatened with suspension uh, by action of the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner uh, because of supposed re repeated failures to observe lobbying niceties. Uh, although, of course, I don't think it's got to the level of him starting an anti-impunity NGO and stuffing it with cash, as we see happens in Brussels. Uh, let's go on to more of these COVID brief mentions. The Daily Telegraph reports that an employment tribunal has thrown out uh, opposition uh, that was raised, uh, an objection that was raised to healthcare staff being uh, being fired for refusing a COVID jab. Uh, I'll just put a couple these on a couple on screen a couple of seconds each. The case was brought against Barchester Healthcare. Uh, you can see the uh, Diriger uh, ridiculing of uh, Christians or any believers uh, really here, thinking that God will protect them from illness. Although that's really uh, the historical position of most of humanity that God will protect you from illness. No, it's absolutely extreme now. To mention such things, Judge Maidment, who threw out the case against Barchester Healthcare, uh, said that the employer was at pains to reaffirm that there was no mandate. So he said that there was a choice. It's just a choice with consequences, a bit like the free speech argument. You can say what you like, but it will have consequences. And uh, what it's you can see here from the names that it is uh, a Lithuanian here who came up with uh, this, uh, this trust in God, uh, not in a way uh, as to ridicule medicine, but to say that the immune system would uh, would do her good. And an Italian uh, name is mentioned here as well. There we are. They've been trusted, uh, uh, thrown out. Uh, a Muslim's been targeted here as well for, for being for ridiculed by the Daily Telegraph write-up. And uh, one more um, has even said that I consider the, the vaccines to be experimental. So obviously, according to the Daily Telegraph, that's an extreme thing to say. Um, here we have... Uh, taking an MP to task regarding the jabs. I won't read any of that. I'll just put it on screen again, but I'm keen to show that a number of people are writing to us saying, I am taking my member of parliament to task with regard to what's said about jabs. I am asking my MP, why weren't you in the chamber when Andrew Bridgen made his recent remarks? You can all do this if you live in Britain with your member of parliament or wherever you are. You can ask them, did you attend this person or remotely join the debate? If not, why not? The truth cannot be hidden or ignored anymore. Um, in Scotland, of course, Scotland has its own parliament. One of its members is John Mason, who often baffles us really with some of the positions he takes. And David Scott forwarded this one to me. This is John Mason, MSP's lines on vaccines. He believes, he considers certain people credible in scrutinising the government as it makes decisions. So he wants all arguments about COVID and the vaccines to go over his head. He wants them to be taken up with appropriate medical and scientific authorities. No differentiation here between captivated, captured ones and uh, uh, unbiased and uh, impartial ones. But then he says at the end, I am convinced, which is just another way of saying I have faith that COVID has been a threat. And I'm convinced that the vaccines have been a tremendous breakthrough enabled by God. I hope this clarifies my position. Down in New Zealand, uh, we have covered the Baby W case, um, which has shocked a lot of our viewers. Now a second couple 
being derided here by the New Zealand Herald as anti-vax, have said they too want unvaccinated blood for their seriously ill toddler. I would say regardless of the brutality of the temporary custodianship imposed on baby W to make him make sure he got operated on with uh, a, a regular pool of blood, the point has been made and a lot of people are really starting to notice now that there may be tainted blood in the system. And uh, here's an example of some really measured commentary coming from a social media user replying to the New Zealand Post. Oh, expletive. I'd bet that all people unvaccinated don't or have never donated blood to start with. Yes, such people exist. And yes, they do believe that seriously. Finally, from me here, Dr. Jeremy Farrar, chief scientist at appointment at the World Health Organization, hot on the heels of the appointment of often referred to as Stalin's nanny, of course, um, another British uh, heavy hitter involved, Dr. Susan Mickey, uh, the communist who doesn't like to be called a communist, who is a communist, and Richard Ebright, a professor at Rutgers University, chemistry and biochemistry, if I remember correctly, replies, this is a major unforced error by the World Health Organization. They do seem to be losing the plot a bit, don't they? Well, there's a lot of encouraging uh, uh, material in that mix. Um, of course, the other side's getting more desperate, so they're becoming more obvious in their attacks on anybody who challenges the narrative. And of course, we are now starting to see some of the uh, professionals and the MPs standing up, so that should be encouraged. I think we're kicking off here with a little video of Fauci in action. Oh, it's just a little reminder of uh, where the U.S. government is pressing right now for the winter uh, with regards to the whole COVID issue. Uh, a lot of countries are starting to dial back uh, their policies and restrictions, but the White House, unfortunately, is pushing uh, pretty hard uh, forward this winter. Here's uh, Anthony Fauci, the uh, Lord of Viruses and Pharmaceutical Products. Here we are going into the third year of it, and we are still mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic with the numbers that you just showed. Right. So that clearly they don't want to let it go. Fauci certainly, you know, he's retiring uh, in a week. Uh, so but he doesn't want to let it go. And so it's clear the establishment, uh, the medical public health establishment in the UK, in the United States, you know, the people have let it go for largely and are glad to see the back of it. But the public health mavens, the politicians, the media, they, they, they don't want to see it go. So we're still in a pandemic, apparently, according to Fauci. So if he is the god of all things public health, and that's what the, that's what the high priests are saying, uh, what are the people uh, supposed to believe on this? Here's Joe Biden. This is what he was pushing out today or last night. Uh, COVID cases are rising across America as folks gather for the holidays. That's why starting today, every household can order four free tests to be shipped straight to their door. Now, 150 million homes, what do you think that's going to cost in terms of public spending? I don't know, by government price standards, you're probably looking at 10 or $15 billion to send out uh, tests that are probably worth, uh, in terms of being manufactured antigen tests, around 50p each. So, you know, a box of Cracker Jacks costs more to manufacture than an antigen test. So this is what they're pushing. Why is the U.S. government pushing tests really hard in the winter? Why? Because without tests, you have no pandemic. It's as simple as that. And if you have no pandemic, you have no emergency use author authorization for vaccines and experimental pharmaceutical products. And if you don't have that emergency use authorization, the pharmaceutical companies lose their liability shield. So you can see how all of these things are absolutely connected. It's a daisy chain of fraud. Yeah, and so this has got to be above national governments. 
because of the global Im the globalist impact and these big corporations, absolutely. So, so it yeah. is important to contrast here, Brian, <laughs> what, what the US is doing, what the UK are probably still pushing, maybe not so much, but here's what China's doing. China will no longer report asymptomatic COVID cases. So they're dialing back their policies. So they're basically saying no more, they're not gonna recognize asymptomatic cases and they're not requiring mass testing anymore. So where are the cases gonna come from? So the mainstream media is absolutely have got their uh, shoes in a bind on this tide. They're tripping over their shoelaces. So let's just look at some MSM gaslighting here. This is the mixed messaging they're trying. They don't know how to report on this now because China was the beacon of all things COVID and pandemic. So China, they're saying uh, it would stop reporting asymptomatic COVID-19 cases since they become impossible to track and mass testing is no longer required. Makes sense, right? Well, here's AP. Meanwhile, China has begun to see what appears to be a rapid increase in new infections. Are you seeing the mixed messaging here? It's totally confusing, raising concerns that the health system is going to be overwhelmed. Where have we heard this script before? It's an old yeah. script. And here they go to throw even more confusion. Uh, there has been little evidence of a surge in patient numbers. So this is one article, and we've seen three pivots right here. And then finally, it's difficult to get a clear picture of the spread. And the new reporting rules could make things even harder. No kidding, Associated Press and the mainstream media are making things pretty hard with this type of gaslighting and mixed messaging. So this is just a little masterclass, a little example of the way the media is struggling now that yeah. China is no longer pursuing a zero COVID policy. So cognitive dissonance in, in the media, they can't grip the system itself. No, they don't know. The, the journalists, all these journalists have made their careers out of the pandemic. They absolutely do not know how to report this now. And with Twitter basically changing hands in management, that's no longer a uh, censorship farm uh, for which to regulate the, the global discourse on this issue, which is going to be even more difficult uh, for mainstream media people who have been used to having a total monopoly and you know total discipline on this conversation. Okay. And uh, we've got another video, I think, about uh, children and vaccines. This is a propaganda video I think people should see. This is taking propaganda to another level. We've shown a lot of uh, you know, disturbing videos on, on UK Column News over the years, uh, especially with regards to the pandemic. I think this, in my opinion, is probably one of the most disturbing, not only because they're using child actors here, but the lies that they're making these children push and how the narrative is so twisted now. And you can probably pick it up, those of you who are uh, au fait with this type of material, you'll pick up the propaganda uh, hypocrisy straight away when you watch this, but uh, we'll go ahead and roll this. In 2020, scientists developed life-saving COVID-19 vaccines in record-breaking time. It was miraculous. It saved the lives of my parents and grandparents. In just a few months, nearly everybody in my country got the vaccine. I lost my mother right at the start of the pandemic. So many doctors and nurses got sick. School closed down. But then came the vaccine. You said life would return to normal. You restored our hope. And you promised you wouldn't stop there. You said you'd help other countries. You promised to share vaccines with the whole world. To make sure it ended everywhere, for everyone. But you took too long. We bought up supplies and held them back. Just, just in, in case. case. You let people in other countries suffer. 
Doctors and nurses kept getting sick. Teachers died. You let the virus carry on, going round and round and round. It changed into even more dangerous variants. Then it all came back again and again and again. Schools closed again. Life kept getting turned upside down for all of us. Things could have worked out so, so different. You knew that no one is safe until everyone's safe. opinion is horrific cynical beyond beyond belief so that a couple of just blatant lies there that should be flagged one of them is life-saving vaccines I challenge any scientist to show that to prove that even I know this is going to sound like a stretch to Brian to, to you and maybe to others but show some scientific proof that these vaccines saved any lives I'd like to see it I, I personally have not seen it yet there's people who have made this uh, allegation, but I do not see any scientific backing to that. And they're, they're getting the kids to tell, to, to give a guilt trip to people in the West that the global South was denied vaccines and Africa suffered and Africans died because they didn't get enough jabs from Pfizer and Moderna. Listen, Africa skipped the pandemic. They skipped it. They didn't do the mass testing. They didn't go into wild hysteria and they didn't go crazy on the experimental jabs. And guess what? No big problems in Africa uh, with regards to <laughs> vaccine injuries, deaths, or COVID deaths or anything like that. They just opted out of the pandemic. But we don't want to talk about that. No, you're not allowed to talk about right. that, but like, luckily we are. So they didn't suffer. UNICEF is just really gone below the belt here and beyond the belt. Des desperation, I think. Well, we're on, we are getting very close to uh, time here. We've, we've got some tremendous content in this news, but the clock has got the better of us. I just wanted to end with this uh, little section on the trans agenda. You've got a, a few slides here, uh, Pat, and also Alex. So let's just go through those because these are pretty astonishing. Sure. Well, the f most important thing that everyone needs to know is that while you were sleeping last night, the Cambridge Dictionary changed the definition of what is a woman. So now, uh, henceforward, uh, according to the uh, great and the good at the Cambridge Dictionary, a woman is an adult who lives and identifies as a female, though they, they, <laughs> they may not have <laughs> may have been <laughs> may have been said to have been a different sex at birth you think we're joking don't you you think we're having it on this is not a man yeah. this is real so they and i love the fact that they they, they changed the pronoun from her to they so that's the came so the corruption of language has really reached an absolute pinnacle here and as you try and read it you are demonstrating the the problems because you're looking at it and saying this can't be real so you're having trouble reading it, and then the words themselves are causing you trouble. This is uh, applied psychology. It's particularly vicious. Carry on through. Yeah, and, and I'm just going to add, anybody who's not standing up and protesting this right now, and any politician that's not 
calling us out, even on the floor of the House of Commons, you really have a lot to answer for because this is just ridiculous. And look at this here. So the woke definition of woman uh, as the identity puts women and girls at risk. So this is uh, editor-in-chief there, the post-millennial Lib uh, Libby Edmonds uh, interview here with Jack Posobiec. She's made the important point here. What is this really about? This is because feminists have coerced, have been coerced into believing this nonsensical lie. Liberal feminists have been totally bludgeoned by their own compassion and coerced into stating that men can be women and that men can be lesbians. Okay, so how far does this go? I'll tell you how far it goes. If you want to go to the cutting edge of this issue, go to Norway. Look at the Nordic model. Here's Scandinavia. A Norwegian actress uh, here faces a three-year prison sentence for saying that men cannot be lesbians. This is one of the harshest pieces of legislation in the world right now uh, with regards to misgendering or using the wrong pronouns or denying that trans women are actually women. You can go to prison in Norway. I kid you not, and yeah. they are arresting people. People have been canceled. This is beyond canceling. They're, they're actually wanting to throw people in prison for it. So this is a really brutal uh, regime in Norway. And I dare say, how long till this spreads through Europe and if, maybe here? If we allow it. So Alex, very quickly, can you give us a glimpse of good news in this direction? I can. First, I'll just plug two articles, sorry, two interviews, an interview and a blog, also on the front page. There's a glut of good material. They will help answer what Patrick has just raised. Uh, one is look to Scotland as a, as a mirror of what's happening in Norway. So David Scott has interviewed Richard Lucas of the Scottish Family Party, talking about uh, the legislative coercion of people in matters of sexuality. Some great insights there. Uh, and also in the comment section near the base of the homepage, near the bottom, uh, there is an excellent uh, German author, Johannes Eisleben, uh, writing about the crisis of Western political systems and whether it's war in Ukraine uh, or fear of viruses or sexual nonsense in our heads. Uh, he describes very well why this chaos is necessary for those uh, in charge of us. But here we are. Uh, this is a piece from The Guardian together with some response from, I have to say, a Cambridge graduate like myself, uh, predating the uh, androgynous dictionary era. Uh, we spoke proper English at Cambridge in our day, but here we are. The Guardian is signalling a change. So it's, actually it's the Observer because Sonia Soda is the chief leader writer for The Guardian's allied Sunday title, The Observer, the oldest English-speaking Sunday paper, actually. And Sonia Soda of The Observer, online branded as The uh, Guardian, says that, Mrs., that Nicola Sturgeon, and then he said, Mrs., very bad of me, Ms. Sturgeon must take heed of changing views on the treatment of gender dysphoria. So here we are. Uh, here's uh, very quickly interspersed with uh, quotations from the article, uh, my Cambridge friend's uh, response here. So uh, the, the, instead of reading verbatim, it's, Look at Katie Dolotowski, a Scottish male sex offender who assaulted two very young girls and then uh, assumed the identity of a woman. Um, and the Cambridge uh, responder says, oh, so we must pass over in silence the case of male rapists who've already been able to secure transfer to women's prisons. And I see Dolotowski is still being called a she. Uh, so the very mention, he says, of the Dolotowski case is a momentous shift. The very mention that there might be the slightest smidgen of a hint of a problem with men in women's prisons was pre or refugees was previously bigotry of the highest order. And those who mentioned it were unpeopled as trans-exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs. Uh, another concern, says Sonia Soda, is that children could change their legal sex 16 and above. 
and we talk, read, read here about mermaids and other campaigning charities. Uh, but the Cambridge reviewer of this, uh, said, sorry, that, that's from the article as well. The Cambridge reviewer responding to this says, before, we, uh, before this paragraph was included in the Observer recently, it was a shortcut to cancellation to mention such things, and it might even have the police on your door for transphobia. So there is a, a shift here. Uh, instead of reading what's on the screen here, I'll summarize. Uh, the idea is that uh, uh, public authorities are now being told through the leader writers like Sonia Soda, you silly people, you shouldn't just take people's word for it that they now feel that they're a woman. You should have protected other women as a case in Essex University uh, in which this was upheld. You don't just say, oh, OK, you feel like a woman, so go to the women's toilets. No, uh, you should protect the, dare I say, real women. Uh, by actually saying, no, first of all, you have to get a legal declaration of this. This argument is now being trotted out uh, in the bien-pensant rags, like the, the Observer. So my Cambridge friend says, what does this indicate? It looks as if the party, in the Orwellian sense, has declared that collectivization may possibly have some problems, or that Deng Xiaoping was not altogether a filthy capitalist roader. Have they recognized that the female electorate has simply had enough of the trans agenda and that they must back off a bit while seeing how much fight there is in the feminists of the old kind? I think that's a, that's a, a fair assessment. Um, and if this is the blowing of the shofar on the trans movement so that those who now know will return to base and shut down their operations, then what is next? What is the next agenda? A very good question there in closing. Uh, it is, Alex. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and I think the proportion of... Uh... Uh, this material that comes into the UK column news shows us the perilous position we're in as this attack on our minds takes place. We've run out of time for the news. Just uh, let's end with some uh, black humour, really, about uh, life around us. What have you got? Yes, and I've just shut down my slide advancing app, so you'll have to go through these while I speak to them. So first meme is old Dr Fauci. I am the science. He actually did say that, by the way. New Dr. Fauci uh, on deposition before Congress says, I don't recall, it doesn't ring a bell, I didn't understand and I can't remember while sucking his glasses frame. Uh, okay. On to the next one. <laughs> there we are, just a couple of examples of the fact checkers not checking the facts. They used to say there's no evidence for mRNA vaccines causing blood clots. That's been revised. They used to say there's no link found so far between menstrual disorders and COVID vaccines, according to the EU. Now they're saying the EU regulator recommends adding heavy periods to the side effects of the shots. Finally, Reuters fact checkers used to say that the US Centers for Disease Control saw no link between heart inflammation and COVID vaccines. Now they say the US FDA is adding warnings about a rare heart inflammation to Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines. Pretty the next one, I think. <laughs> yep. okay. Europe's loud rulemaking unvaccinated minority are falling out of society, says CNN. That's a picture of European plebs who aren't allowed to, uh, to object. But if you tap that once more, you will see that in China, we've covered this a bit before, yeah, utter heroes. So CNN's editorializing in China is at the heart of China's protests against zero COVID. Young people cry for freedom. Uh, my final and finally is from the Northwest Arkansas Democrat, the kind of redneck title that the Europeans love to snigger at. And here is a big fat man labeled European Union, perhaps with his rule of law brief in, uh, behind him talking to a starving third world baby and saying, well, we know there's a critical food shortage. So we're closing 3000 farms in the Netherlands to cut carbon emissions. It's actually the nitrous oxide emissions, meaning some of you folks will have to hurry up and die to save the planet. And if you tap that once more, the people, people who tweeted that said, 
Uh, this is uh, a Dutch tweeter saying the minister who brought this in in the Netherlands, Carolina van der Plas, the European Parliament, members of the Dutch National Parliament, many people worldwide will die because you're expropriating at least 3,000 Dutch farms. I support the farmers. Okay, Alex, uh, thank you very much for that. That brings us to the end of today's news. Patrick, thank you for joining me. A big thank you to Mike Robinson, who stayed the course to make this uh, news today possible. Unfortunately, we aren't able to give you an extra time today. We hope normal service will be resumed on Monday. So please join us then. And we'll end by saying once again, a really big thank you to everybody, whether you're in UK or worldwide, who's supporting UK Column because we can only do what we do with your support and help. Thank you for joining us today. Bye-bye.